Hi there. So this is the first message in our new series, which is on Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as I said in the trailer, you know, when properly understood, the message of Galatians is dynamite because it's essentially about the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, so often, you know, the way that we uh, understand the gospel or the way that it's typically presented is in re relation to my personal salvation. Like, you know, how can I be saved? And yet the implications of the gospel are so much greater, so much more glorious and far reaching than how do I get to heaven? You know, the gospel is an announcement. It's something to be heralded and proclaimed that because of Jesus, the world is now a different place. Something new and shocking has happened in history. And it's the fulfillment of ancient hopes and promises, but in a way that no one expected. And the result of which is that the future is so much brighter, so much more beautiful than anyone could have imagined. And the good news is that we can be part of it right now through Jesus Christ. And when we enter in and experience the power of that, it's explosive, it's transformative. It's how a community of ordinary men and women turn the Roman world upside down. But when we make it all about me and my personal salvation, which is largely what it's become in the West, it's like uh, lighting one of those fireworks, you know, called sonic boom or a volcanic eruption. And it kind of goes, or worse still, when the gospel gets corrupted or distorted, as it was in the Galatian churches, it's like taking the fuse out of a stick of dynamite and it's rendered useless. It's robbed of its explosive power. So my prayer for us and for all who join us in this series is that we will discover and experience the explosive power of the true gospel and it will blow up old ways of thinking and living. That we will truly enter into the newness of life that Jesus won for us through the cross. Alright? Now, before we read the first section of this letter, let's just quickly get some context. The churches in Galatia, which is uh, a region in modern-day Turkey, were churches that the Apostle Paul had founded on his first missionary journey. They were probably still young and just beginning to grow uh, when some false teachers infiltrated their congregations and were leading people astray. They were undermining Paul's authority and the gospel that he'd preached to them. Who is this man Paul anyway, they were saying. He wasn't one of the twelve apostles. Who gave him spiritual authority? Don't, don't listen to his funny ideas. It's our message you need to pay attention to because we got ours from the real apostles in Jerusalem. You see, that's what they were saying. Now, this would have been a group of Jewish Christians because, of course, the first Christians in Jerusalem were Jewish. Uh, but as the gospel spread out from there, more and more non-Jewish people were getting converted to Jesus. And the Jews called them Gentiles. That would have included most of the new converts in Galatia. They were Gentile Christians. So there was this group of Jewish Christians who come amongst them and were saying, you know, we've heard Paul's message that all you need to do is believe in Jesus and you can have a seat at the table. Don't you believe it? If you want to be accepted as one of God's people and join his family, there are certain ancient requirements that God has given. So for starters, you need to be circumcised because that's what identifies us as belonging to him. 
Then there's the law of Moses you need to keep, including the various food laws, which you, you can't go mixing with people who aren't kosher. Well, you can just imagine the division that would have caused in a multi-ethnic church, can't you? But you know, what they were saying would have sounded quite reasonable. Because after all, they weren't denying that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed in Jesus, like, like you and me. But they were saying there are all these other things that God has required of us and that uh, distinguish us as his people. But as Paul knew, that is not good news. If you distort the gospel, you destroy the church because it's deserting Jesus himself. It's denying what he came to do. And so Paul wrote this letter to set things straight. And it's evident he's very upset. So let's now just read the first nine verses. And I'll just give a little bit of commentary along the way. From verse one, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. So right here at the beginning, Paul establishes his authority. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles, but he was specially commissioned as an apostle by the risen Christ himself. And his authority was recognized by all the other brothers who worked with him. Verse three, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, uh, this was more than just a standard greeting. This contains the essence of Paul's gospel, the implications of which he's going to unpack in the rest of his letter. Uh, so we'll come back to that. Now, usually Paul would then go on to express his praise and thanksgiving for a church, but not this one. In fact, it gets right to the point. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul's dismay here would be similar to Moses when he came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, only to find God's people worshipping a golden calf. I mean, he'd only been gone a while, and he was astonished that God's people could so quickly change their allegiance from the one true God. And that's really what Paul was facing here. How could you so quickly desert the one who's shown you such grace, he says, You've turned to a different gospel, which is not good news at all. And the people who have told you this lie, they're troublemakers. They are perverting the gospel, reversing it. That's the word that Paul uses here. It says distort or pervert uh, in our Bibles, but it literally means to turn around or reverse, right? These troublemakers were reversing the order. They were saying, if you meet the requirements, you could be a son of Abraham too. All you have to do is keep these rules and then God will accept you into his family. Whereas the gospel says God accepts us into his family through faith in Christ alone, that Jesus has met the requirements for us. And so we can now live as dearly loved sons and daughters. But you see, when we reverse the order, we're left with no gospel at all. 
because there is nothing that we can add to what Christ has already done for us. And so that's why Paul's so angry with these troublemakers who are threatening to destroy the church and who are diminishing the glory of Christ. So verse 80 says this, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Right? Let him be banned, he's saying, cast out. He's using strong language here. That's how important this is. And then just to underline it, he then repeats himself. He says, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Wow. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking to yourself, what is all the fuss about? And what's this got to do with me anyway? Surely, as long as we believe in Jesus, we can all go home, right? I mean, as long as we're trusting in Jesus to forgive our sins, then we'll all get to heaven. Isn't that what counts? Well, no. Because for one thing, we're not going to heaven. You're not going to heaven. Heaven is coming to us. In fact, when Jesus was raised from the dead, a whole new creation was launched from within the womb of the old. And part of that new creation is God's new family on earth, made up of Jews and Gentiles, people from every nation, tribe and tongue, who all have a seat at the table because of Jesus. And that's the gospel Paul was preaching. The question is, what gospel are we believing? Because it has massive implications for our lives here and now. And to get a better understanding, let's just read verses three to five again. Paul says to the churches of Galatia, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Now, to understand the gospel Paul is preaching here, we need to understand that Jesus didn't just give his life so our sins could be forgiven. It was so that we could be rescued from this present evil age, as Paul says here. You see, in biblical thinking, history is divided up into these two ages, right? There is the present evil age where we're subject to the powers of darkness and where we're enslaved by sin and death. And then there's the age to come where God will put everything right, where sorrow will be wiped away and death will be no more. And God's people will inherit a new heavens and earth as seen by prophets like Isaiah. See, that was the Jewish hope. It was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the earth. And that's why for some of the Jewish Christians, the issue was, who are Abraham's descendants? Right? How can Gentiles like, like you and me be included unless we essentially live as Jews and keep the law of Moses? What they didn't understand was that Jesus, with him, the new age had already begun. Jesus came to deliver us, both Jews and Gentiles, from the present evil age. That word deliver also means rescue. We needed rescuing. The word that Paul uses is the same word used in the book of Acts to describe the rescue of the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. So as N.T. Wright says, Paul is describing here a new exodus. 
In fact, it's the ultimate exodus because all mankind were being held captive by evil powers. We were enslaved by our sins under the sentence of death, but Jesus gave himself for our sin. He paid the ransom with his own life so that we could be set free from our slavery and enter into the new age, the age to come. But that new age is already here. That's the magnitude of the gospel that Paul's defending, that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, the new age had begun. It's here now. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the world became a different place for both Jews and Gentiles. Because when Jesus died and rose again, he became the first fruits of God's new creation. And all who believe in him and are rescued from the old and become part of the new, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, therefore he says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And right now, those two ages overlap one another. And that's why we still live with the effects of sin and death in the world. But as part of God's new creation, our presence here is meant to have a transformative effect. Now, there's a great picture of this in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where in Narnia it's a perpetual winter in a world that's under the spell of the evil witch, and many of the creatures have been turned to stone, and that's a picture of our own slavery in this present evil age. But throughout the story, there are signs of the age to come kind of breaking into Narnia as the snow begins to melt and flowers start to appear on the earth. And it all comes to a head when Aslan the lion gives his life in exchange for the traitor Edmund. And it invokes a deeper magic from before the dawn of time where death could be reversed. And so Aslan is resurrected from the dead and he takes the children to the witch's castle where he breathes new life into the creatures that she's turned to stone. And of course that's a picture of all who belong to Christ now in this present evil age set free from our bondage and then joining with Jesus in his mission to plunder the strongholds of darkness and set other captives free. But one day, as we see in the story of Narnia, the battle will be over as Aslan kills the witch and the children are crowned as kings and queens. And that's a picture of us in the new heavens and new earth. One other detail in the Narnia story is that Aslan was sacrificed on a stone table, which was symbolic of the law of Moses written on tablets of stone. And when Aslan rose from the dead, the stone table cracked. You see, like the Apostle Paul, C.S. Lewis understood that when Jesus died and rose again, something new had come to pass. The old covenant, as represented by the law of Moses, had been replaced by a new and better covenant, where God's people would now be empowered by his spirit to walk with him in newness of life. What the law could never accomplish was now accomplished by Christ through his death and resurrection and by the sending of his spirit. The new age is the age of his spirit, which Paul gets into towards the end of Galatians. And as Paul says, this was always God's plan. He says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory. It was always his plan that he would have a people for his glory, a people made up of every nation, tribe and tongue. It was his promise to Abraham that the nations would be blessed through him and his seed. God the Father willed it. Jesus the Son accomplished it. And all glory goes to him because our acceptance 
into his family is not based on anything we have done or ever could do, but only because of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's his grace to us, says Paul, so all glory goes to him. What the gospel announces is that we can all have seats at the table. We all get to be full members of God's family with a glorious inheritance in the new heavens and new earth, both Jews and Gentiles, on the same basis, which is through faith in Christ alone. It's a new age. It's a new people, which incidentally is why it's always a challenge to build multi-ethnic churches, as Paul found. It's a demonstration of the new creation, but that will always be resisted while we live in this present evil age. But can you see that it's this gospel, the true gospel, that unifies us and that makes us one? As soon as you start messing with the gospel, start kind of adding these other requirements, making other things as important, then you threaten the unity and witness of the church. That's what was happening in Galatia, as we'll see another time. And it's why we must make Jesus and his gospel the main thing. You know, we can disagree about other things, but it shouldn't divide us. Not if we're making the gospel the main thing. You know, in any church, there are uh, open-handed issues and closed-handed issues. And really, the gospel should be the only closed-handed issue. Open-handed issues like our personal preferences and values, they're kind of written in pencil and ink. Only the gospel is written in blood. It's the only thing we should be prepared to die for. And yet, sadly, in many churches, people are dividing over political persuasion, personal liberties and cultural preferences, none of which have to do with the gospel. The only thing that should divide us is when a different gospel is being preached. And that's why Paul called for a ban on those who are perverting the gospel. So how can we apply what we've heard today? There's a lot of uh, implications and applications to what I've been saying, many of which I hope we'll explore over the coming weeks. But I just want to close by uh, warning us about two traps that I see here in the story of the Galatians. Uh, two traps that we can fall into and that will keep dragging us back into the slavery of this present age that Jesus rescued us from and will hinder us from entering into the fullness of life we find in him. All right, so two traps. Ask yourself, which one am I in danger of falling into? The first trap is when well-meaning Christians, or perhaps not so well-meaning Christians, maybe false teachers or prophets, you know, they tell you that if you really want to be accepted by God and his people, you need to keep certain rules. They might be the traditions of a particular denomination or the unwritten rules of a church. And some of you listening here would have grown up in churches where the rule was, you know, you didn't drink or smoke or dance or go to the movies. You know, you want to be one of us, you don't do those things and we'll be watching you. Right. That, that is like the weather right now. It's as cold as a legalist's heart. Sometimes it's the uh, expectations of a group of people. Uh, they might be cultural expectations or political expectations. Like if you're really a Christian, then you'll vote for this party. It's like Jesus plus politics. And you know what that equals, don't you? Politics. But it can be even more subtle than that. 
know, you might be led to believe that if God's going to be happy with you, if you want things to go well with you, then you need to have a quiet time every day. You need to pray, read your Bible, go to church, do good to others. And it's not that those things aren't good. I mean, I do those things. But if you think that those things will make you more acceptable to God or to others, then it's a false gospel you're believing. Because it's Jesus plus something. It means Jesus is not enough. It means you need to add all these other things so that you can be right with God. And that is a trap because you'll never feel like you're doing enough. It's like somewhere in heaven, there's this uh, school report card with your name on it and it says, could do better. And if that's you, you need to know that if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you have been rescued from all of that. Right? He took your place. He paid the price. He met the requirements. He's done it all. There's nothing you can add to make God love you more. God totally accepts you. He delights in you. You're a dearly loved child of God. And it's got nothing to do with your performance and everything to do with Jesus. Okay? But if one trap is adding something to Jesus, then the other trap is adding Jesus to something. You see, these Gentile Christians were being told, you need to add these other things to your faith in Jesus, like circumcision, food requirements, and so on. It was Jesus plus something. But for those Jewish Christians, it was kind of the other way around. The trap was to just add Jesus to their existing way of life. Some of them believed they were already right with God because they kept the law of Moses. So all they needed to do was just add Jesus. So it was something plus Jesus. Now, most of us don't have a Jewish background, but we can still fall into the same trap of just adding Jesus to our existing way of life. You know, just ask Jesus into our hearts, but carry on living as if we still belong to this present age. You know, we just continue living for self and putting our hope in the things of this world. And so whether we realize it or not, Jesus is reduced to being one of a number of things that might be important to us. Instead of the arisen, exalted Lord of all, he's just kind of reduced to being a comfort blanket when times are hard. Or maybe an insurance policy for when we die. You know, we want Jesus for what he can do for us. But Jesus didn't give himself up for us so that we could just add him to our existing lives. No, he came to blow them up, to replace them with something infinitely better. We will never experience that. But by just trying to add Jesus to our lives, it's only by dying to our lives, dying to self. You see, we all come to Jesus on the same basis that because he died and rose again, so must we. And it's only when we do that, truly die to self, that we'll experience the power of the new age through our union with him. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it a little later on in Galatians 2.20. I'll close with this. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that? Is it true for you? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because you see, that is the key. That is the dynamite of the gospel.